Hey everybody, welcome to CookPod, the podcast where I'm not just the president, I'm also a client. I'm Peter Barrett. This week I talk with my buddy Gerard Viverito. We've known each other pretty much since I moved up here about 12 years ago. Uh, he's a professor at the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park and a lot of other things. He's first and foremost, in my mind, uh, one of the leading experts in the country, really, on sustainable seafood. And uh, we spend a fair amount of time getting into that and discussing the parlous state of the oceans today and what we as consumers can try to do about it. Um, We also cover the path that got him to where he is and some of his pretty amazing experiences around the world and uh, the importance and utility of enhancing your education, particularly your culinary education, with lots of travel and uh, extracurricular study. He's Gerard Viverito on Instagram, chefgerard.com. I'm cookblog on Instagram, cookpod.net, acookblog.com. Check it out. He's great. He knows a lot of things, and if you care about the food you eat and where it comes from, Uh, This one's well worth a listen. We recorded this in my office, actually, because the dining room was occupied by our wives who were waiting for us to finish so we could all make dinner together, which we did after we had this interview. That's a true story. So uh, please enjoy my talk with Chef Gerard Viverito. But you're not, you're from... I forget, like Baltimore, right? Originally or somewhere? Originally from New Jersey. Bergen County, New Jersey. Franklin Lakes. And then moved down to Potomac, Maryland. So I always tell people I was lucky enough <laughs> to live in two uh, real housewives towns. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Awful people. Beautiful land. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I went to high school in Maryland. College at University of Maryland. Out to Arizona for culinary school. Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Caribbean for four years on St. John, England, Barcelona, Mallorca for two years, touch of Turkey, back to Barcelona, Cannes, Nice, Antibes, back to Mallorca, then back to Palm Beach, San Diego, Portland, New York for the last 14 and a half years. Wow. So what made you... um was it, was it kind of, uh, you know, how Italian-American was your household growing up in terms of, like, was it a real red sauce, like, Sunday gravy situation, or? Yeah, yeah, I mean, my grandmothers, both of my grandmothers, it was, they were the Parmesan palaces. It was complete Italian-American. They were, they were first-generation Americans. My house, I, it was funny, it, if my parents ever heard this, they would shoot me, but they, they were of the generation where it was like they tried to assimilate and be wasps. Mm-hmm. Right, they wanted to be in the country clubs and the New York Athletic Club, but they were, you know, too dark, even to be in the New York Athletic Club. And they always strove to be the country club set and the the whitest people. And I'm like, embrace the heritage. They refused to teach us Italian. Hmm. I only learned Italian by listening to them speak to their grandparents, and only then I still remember all the dirty words and all. Right. That. They would really speak. They would yell at each other in Italian. They would speak to each other in English. Hmm. Well, it really is one of the world's great yelling languages. It is, and it just sounds so beautiful. You can yeah. rip someone down and, and build them back up, and it sounds like an opera. Yeah. But uh, they always held on to their, their food heritage. And as much as it was Italian-American, I mean, there were still tr- very traditional dishes. I mean, we I learned how to make gnocchi handmade with my grandmother and all the breads and all the rolled pastas and the flat pastas and the filled pastas. But... I mean, I'm not going to lie and not say that, you know, in my teenage years, 13, 14, there was confirmation or something. It was, you know, whatever you call those things, chafing dish with baked CD and <laughs> brush hole and right. sausage and peppers. Danielle always laughs. She died the first time we went to the beach and she's like, well, what should we bring for food? I'm like, well, sausage and peppers, peppers and eggs and meatball sandwiches. And she's like, what the hell are you talking about? I'm like, well, that's, 
growing up in New York, that's what we brought to the beach. Wow. You know, a little hard roll, a little Kaiser roll with a little fresh sauce and some, we call it gravy, but, you know, I guess I finally learned that people brought fried chicken and, and sandwiches or, or potato chips. I mean, that's not how you go to the beach, but that's... Right, right. I grew up, you know, elementary school. My, I think this was trial by fire with the seafood is I was the kid who got mad at everyone when I smelled an egg salad sandwich. I wanted to beat the snot out of the people because it just the smell would put me over the edge. Mm. But my parents sent me to school with the tins of sardines with the key and some days it was <laughs> olive oil, some days it was tomato sauce. And I'm right. like, yeah, I love. Right. So to this day, I'm like, I need a fish that tastes like a fish. Yeah, yeah. No, I've been, I've been digging the anchovies and sardines hard today. Uh, I mean, today, these days, in general, they're sort of my favorite thing. Um, well, we can get to that a little later, but, but you know, the, the, the beauty of the small oily fishes is it's hard to eat too many of them. So you can feel good about it in a couple of different ways. And eating lower on the food chain is yeah. better for the planet. Yeah. So. so at what point, you did high school down in Maryland, yeah? Mm-hmm. Went to college there. Um, so after college, you wanted to go to culinary school. So no, what, actually no. in ninth grade. I moved in with my father in ninth grade. Yeah. And where I went to school in Maryland, it was 7th, 8th, ninth was middle school. So I moved down. I did middle school in Jersey, which was 7th and 8th, and then moved down there in ninth grade. And by the summer between ninth and 10th grade, I realized that I could cook. And I was like, huh, this is something I really want to do. And there were two things I read, Car and Driver magazine and cookbooks. And I just like loved reading about the techniques. And my mom went to some weekend cooking school I think I can't remember if it was Brennan's or Commander's Palace in New Orleans and she brought back these recipes and I would recreate them even in ninth and 10th grade I'm like I want to cook for a living and my father's like over my dead body because mm. in this was 1984 85 and yeah. you were like either an ex-con or you couldn't get a job anywhere else so you became a cook if you were not you know European so he didn't understand he's like you're going to college I'm sorry you are not going to culinary school if you want to go to culinary school it can be on your own dime when you graduate so I always had jobs in restaurants and looking back I worked at a barbecue place it was probably my first real restaurant job and my job was you know with a wall mount thing running potatoes through and doing three 50-gallon drums of french fries and then blanching them in oil and then putting them on speed racks in the cooler and then during dinner service i was the fry guy yeah and i'd come home and my father would literally say hose yourself off in the yeah. backyard before yeah. you walk in my house you stink st- of grease yeah. yeah you stink like peanut oil and french fries and then i'm like well i smell smoky like hickory it's also pretty good it's like outside <laughs> hose off so i i think i possibly just pursued cooking more and more because i knew it pissed him off yeah well he wanted me to be the you know attorney who was going to work for the real estate development company and it was mm-hmm. going to be this was he an attorney for... no he was a real estate developer okay. but he knew that you know he wanted because i had one point in time expressed uh i'm going to be a lawyer and i was actually pre-law for quite a while at university of maryland because mm. he had kind of talked me out of it but i just kept going back all my jobs in school, if they weren't summertime construction jobs, they were still food related because I could get the right hours during school. And then towards, uh, I think it was my junior and senior year, we had an apartment style dorm and my friends were hunters and they'd bring goose and, and ducks and nice. venison and I would just cook and they're like, oh, you're really good at this. I'm like, oh, and I kept telling myself, I'm going to culinary school, I'm going to culinary school. And then it just stuck. I'm like, I need to go. So I looked at a few schools and I found a, a small accelerated program in Arizona because I, I wanted to go to CIA, but I knew I was going to be paying for it. And I just finished four years of college. Yeah, because the CIA is college for most people to go, right? It is. It is. And back then it was still even the minimum was a two-year program. Like, I just did four years. I can't do another two. So I found a program that was a year and about a tenth of the price. Yeah. And I wrote enough scholarship letters that I... You know, and I knew I was on my own, so I had to make it affordable. So my mom made a deal because she was so thrilled that I was going to cook that she'd pay my rent, and I had to pay for the school. So between scholarships and everything, I got it down to a manageable level. And I think I only had student loans for a year, two years after cool. I graduated. Yeah, I found a great chef, Scott Tompkins, who was my mentor. I worked a, a ACF, American Culinary Federation, competition as his apprentice. He drew me out of a hat. All the apprentices got drawn, and 
He's like, oh, you should come after the competition. He won a, a gold medal. He's like, you should come check out this dining club. And I wound up working for him for about a year, year and a half. And all these great people in the in the Phoenix Valley were like, oh, you need to go travel the world. Back then, there was no fear. Like, I see some of my kids today in school, my classroom, like, oh, you, need, you should go here, you should go there. And they're just like, well, I don't, I'm afraid to. Yeah. Or they're like, oh, I could just watch it online. And back then, we didn't have online. I mean, yeah, but it's not the same, we had the man. web in 92, but good God, it was like DOS operating system or whatever it was. And it was a flashing green cursor and it was yeah. garbage. But so it was just all these tales of like these foreign lands. You could see it in books and magazines. So I just started cruising around and realizing, wow, the world is amazing. And yeah. I didn't, no one told me it was a scary thing or a weird thing. Or It was just, sure, you did it. Yeah. I mean, my grandparents and aunts and uncles they went off to war or whatever so what was the difference if there was no war you're just going off to a foreign land to cook absolutely and uh i i fell in love with the caribbean and and well backstory i was always raised my parents had boats since before i was born so i always grew up on from literally like two weeks old i was on boats so it's yeah. always fishing and water skiing and snorkeling and then became scuba diving and so there was this great affinity for the water and for seafood and being surrounded by it. And then after that, I got onto the yacht circuit because I said, well, here's my way to combine. It's actually a hurricane, Hurricane Marilyn and Luis. And I think it was 90, they were mid 90s, drove me out of the Caribbean because my house blew over, my restaurant sure. blew off the hill. I'm was it yours or you were just working there? Well, I was just working there, but okay. I mean, it was, it was my home. Yeah. You know, any chef lives in the restaurant more than they are at home. So then my father's like, get back to America. And then I wound up in Palm Beach for a while where he was. And I'd see all these mega yachts, 200, 250 feet. And I'm like, huh. He's like, yeah, you should go be a chef on there. Because now he started accepting it because he saw I was going to all these fancy places. And I'd always say that my father is more drawn to material wealth than anything else so to him it was now acceptable well because you started there, there started to be status that came if, with what you were doing and in that time the food network went from three time slots to a 24-hour channel and he started seeing that it was okay maybe it's not as dirty of a profession as it could yeah, be. yeah and you can get rich and famous doing it exactly oh you could be on tv so maybe there's some credibility right so then I got uh, some gigs on some really amazing yachts that took me around the world. And of course, now he's like, oh, my son's in Monaco for a year. My son's in the Balearic Islands for a year. And he, like, now he started accepting it. And were those gigs, um, were they uh, kind of finite duration? Like they'd hire you just for a season or for a particular trip? Some or, were. Yeah. I, like, I did a finite trip to um, the islands, 250 miles southwest of Cabo San Lucas but for most of the boats they either want you for the season or ideally longer mm -hmm. it depends on if it's a charter boat or if it's an owner boat the owner boats generally like to know they have you long term because once you finally learn their likes and their dislikes yeah. and their quirks and their but, anomalies but what if they don't use it that often do they just keep you on retainer and you fuck around until yeah, they need I, I was on one boat where Christ I think I saw the owner once in six months wow. and they call those boats welded to the pier it's just but that's kind of boring too because yeah. when you're in your young 20s and you're like you want to go this i want to see the world yeah this is boring and to some people they like it because they develop families and they're like i have my apartment in barcelona and i go down to the pier and i cook for the crew and then i go back at night to my family so i i, I, I did it all i did charters i did owner operators i did combination boats and i don't know the owner boats sometimes, I don't know, it depends on your owner. I had a really cool owner on one boat, and, and he loved us and gave us the freedom to play with his toys. And he's like, look, when I'm here, I want your full attention. And when I'm not here, you guys can play and relax. But, you know, the boat's got to be maintained and everything else. So right. that was cool. But, you know, you, you kind of see these are people who, I mean, you can't even measure their wealth. I mean, all the celebrities and everything, you're just like, wow, they're just miserable people, too. <laughs> you know, you would think you would be nice to the crew with a sixty-five or one hundred fifty-two million dollar yacht. You yeah. would just think you're the nicest person in the world, and you got two helicopters on the deck and three forty-foot tenders that are, you know, whatever half a million dollars each, and you're still miserable. Yeah, but I, it taught me a lot about myself and ordering food, 
and cooking and I always made sure that I you know if the boats were any um, type of setup to be fishing that I would get them rigged because you know they they don't care about money so you'd go and you'd have the local tackle shop outfit the whole boat and then I'd convince the owners like oh we could have the freshest of fish and literally do sashimi on the deck and Mm -hmm. then we'll let it go through rigor mortis and we'll have dinner later tonight and they were always hip to it they always trusted me i sold it to them like look i grew up on boats sport fishermen's mainly for my life yeah i can rig it i can fish it i can teach you i can cut it i can cook it so it just kept driving me i kept noticing i always was going back to the sea you know and then flash forward a few years i wound up moving to san diego by roughly around the year 2000 and some friends and I in the restaurant industry just kept noticing that the fish we were buying were getting smaller and smaller but more and more expensive we're like what yeah. the hell is going on here and we you know did more and more research as much as we could even it, it sounds funny to think in 2000 to say hey we're doing research but in 2000 you were still boots on the ground research it's 18, 19 years later, it's like what you, we take for granted what we could find out. Yeah. So we formed a nonprofit called passionfish.org. Was, was this with Barton? He was one of these colleagues? No, no, no. I Barton was much, much later. later. Okay. That was at, at uh, he was actually a, a, a fellow slash teaching assistant at the Culinary Institute. Oh, okay. So that was later. Yeah. Right, but so Sandy, so what was Passion Fish? Passion Fish was, was all was about educating people and not advocating about proper seafood sourcing choices. And this sounds to anyone listening today would be like, well, that's obvious. You vet your purveyors, but you got to realize in 2000, 18 years ago, sustainability wasn't even a buzzword. yet. Well, that was still the height of, uh, of Chilean sea bass, right? That was one of the main drivers. So it was like an orange roughy, you know, and it's funny because you say Chilean sea bass, you know, Patagonian toothfish, Patagonian toothfish, or or uh, orange roughy slimehead. If if they went by their real names, people of course wouldn't eat them. Yeah. So um, there was this whole movement. We were at the forefront of it, and we would host little summits, and we'd go around California and up and down the West Coast, and put on these symposiums and we always wanted to just start this Socratic dialogue where people were talking because we knew the second we took an advocacy role you shut people down yeah. no one wants to be told what to do it's and I think that's the benchmark of higher education is you say here's the information do what you want with it right but at least right or know, do you have any questions or do you have any questions or you, you can't put the rain back in the cloud once you hear it you know I'm not going to tell you not to eat x y or z but eat it these are just the whatever implications ramifications yeah. of eating it. yeah and it just kept going and going and and we've been trying to put out a book we always laugh for the last 18 19 years and say one day we'll do it should we sell fun should we seek publishing but i guess in in this weird twist is had we put out the book years ago what was sustainable then is not sustainable now what's sustainable today won't be sustainable by the time the book is published and especially anything you'd written about farming 10 15 years ago really doesn't apply anymore yeah i mean there's actually really good farms yeah yeah i'm super excited about the vertical thing not just the shellfish but you get the kelp and then the shellfish and then the fish on top and it's amazing how much food you can make in a integrated integrated multi-trophic aquaculture and i think the canadians their acronym is SIMTA, C-I-M-T-A. Mm-hmm. I think they've got the they've got it down. They they actually there are some really good salmon farms up there, and I know some listeners may say no, there aren't. I mean, yes, True North for Lasso, there are some good salmon farms out there. And so, did they take kind of the model that Loch Duart was doing in Scotland and expand on it, make it better? I I don't know how they went about doing it. I know there is a professor, Dr. Charles Yarish, out in Connecticut, who did a lot of the groundwork for them and knowing that all the effluent from salmon is so high in nitrogen and then they started farming what we call nori or seaweed and gim in korean and started exporting that and making tons of money off of it and then also that breaks up and settle down and then feeds all your mollusks on the bottom like the mussels so you got it's almost like joel salatin with his cows chickens and pigs it's this triad of of integration. And they also rotate like Salatin does. They rotate and leave mm-hmm. a certain spot fallow every third, fourth year or something. Exactly. So there is, if someone says fish farming is bad, I'm like, well, 
so is growing vegetables. And then I catch them guard. They're like, well, what do you mean? No, guards are good. I'm like, oh, your garden may be good. Corn in the Midwest right. may be a monocrop, and it's not so good. Right. I mean, like, in this day and age to say anything's good or bad, you really have to do your research. And I think enough people have not been advocates but have asked questions. Yeah. Like a couple of my colleagues and I always talk about, like, we're it's fine. We're just actually talking about it on, I think it was Thursday, where someone mentioned a fish and my my boss was actually standing next to me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, but how is the farming or how is the catching or, or tell me about it? And he just looked at me and goes, isn't it funny that, like, that's the first thing that comes to mind these days? Not how does it taste or, or you know, what what's the cooking profile you might use for it but now all of a sudden we're all the first thing we're thinking about is what are the implications of using this product yeah but that's great don't you think i think it is great but people also have to realize that just as farming can be good not so good or not good yeah so is wild caught yeah you know people poster child for for shit farming forever was salmon yeah then you look, ask someone if they eat oysters, and like, oh yeah, I love them. I'm like, 98% of all oysters are farm raised. How do you feel about fish farming now? Yeah. Like, oh, that's different. I'm like, is it? Farming is farming. There's yeah. good salmon farming. There's good bronzino farming. There's terrible bronzino farming. There's great, you know, just like there's good fishing and not so good fishing. You could eat a swordfish. Was it harpooned or was it gill netted? Was it long lined? And yeah. on that long line where they're hawkbill turtles and where there are some sharks and what other kind of bycatch was on it yeah yeah it's really complicated so so the the something i wanted to get to we can obviously jump back to uh cover the some more ground but um the monterey aquarium they have their wallet card right their mm-hmm. little pamphlet so you can take that with you to the store are there other things that you particularly like right now that are especially useful for people who are overwhelmed by I think Monterey Bay is a great starting point, and what's real, what I like about them, and you know, I'm not shilling for them or anything, but they do have the wallet cards based on region. Oh, okay. So I think that's really cool. They do have a West Coast one. They've got a Midwest one. They've got a, a East Coast one. Monterey Bay, I think, was the first one to do the sushi card, mm-hmm. and I think there are a lot of people doing it now. I always look for a third party certification, kind mm-hmm. of just someone once removed. With a couple of different um, people, Marine Stewardship Council, I think did a really good job of vetting wild catch fish. Mm-hmm. I know there's some people now doing um, aquaculture, but I mean we're we're in New York right now, and like what I try to teach to my students is something could be sustainable here. It yeah. doesn't mean it's sustainable three states south of here. I think the biggest misconception of sustainability is well how is it for the species right and if you and i were to really get into it you and i understand that sustainability has to do with the environment it has to do with the species it has to do with the economics of the area if the locals can only fish fish x and you tell them not to fish it anymore and they go broke and homeless that's not sustainable it's not sustainable exactly 100 percent or if they leave this fish and the fish overpopulates and then wipes out everything else in the area well that's not right, sustainable. Because anytime you're managing one species, you're managing somebody's food supply and somebody else's predator, and you have to be aware of that. Or introducing another species. One right. of the species that I, I've been seeing gaining a lot of traction these days is the blue cat, the ocean blue catfish from the Chesapeake Bay. Uh-huh. Whereas, if memory serves me correctly, back in the 80s when I lived in the Chesapeake area, or at least on weekends, I was always there fishing. And the striped bass, which they call rockfish in the area, population declined. And then the hybrid bass started being introduced, uh, which is a man-made fish. They started importing blue cats of the Chesapeake to stock it for so people could go fishing on the weekends. And anytime you introduce a species to an area, they have no natural predators. Right. So now the Chesapeake blue cat has taken over the Chesapeake and pretty much decimated everything. So they're offering such subsidies to use this fish. They actually, you know, get the locals to catch them and distribute them like the silver, I guess it's called the Asian carp or silver fin in the Midwest, these fish that leap out of the water. Oh yeah. Same type of deal. So, I don't know. I don't even need, I don't even know where to begin with with sustainability anymore. I mean, it was funny when speaking you brought up Barton when yeah. Bart Seaver in Barcelona 
he was talking about sustainability from a chef's standpoint, and I was teaching about how hard it is as an educator to teach about it. And he said in a room, God, there must have been 600 people there, because if you want to be sustainable, stop having kids. <laughs> yeah. And you could hear a pin hit the carpeted floor in this auditorium. That's how quiet everyone went. And he was like, no, really, what you guys don't understand is population grows exponentially, and no other animal really does. Yeah. I mean, fish mate, and they have their, their brood, and humans decide, well, I want to have one kid or I want to have 12, right? So yeah. if everybody, if we double the population of the planet, how are we going to feed that many people? Right, and the ocean's warming up and acidifying, and the coral reefs are dying, so that the very bottom of the food chain is starting to get wiped out. So we have less and less food, yet more and more people. So on a, on a line graph, we're actually going in opposite direction, so it's really hard. So thus, we need farming. Yeah. Or it just needs to be good farming yeah we're running out of land we're running out of water i mean i guess we have more water with polar ice melting but in more water we have less fish yeah so what are we how do we feed the people so like i do try to say eat lower on the food chain eat quicker repopulating species but it tends to be the 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 lower food chain animals like you and i like the sardines the herrings and many in the anchovies yeah even shellfish those tend to be the ones people don't like. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I mean people you, who like them really like them. Oh, yeah. My I mean, family, if I buy anchovies, they're for me. Yeah. Unless I'm making like a puttanesca or something, um, or using fish sauce, right, which is an anchovy product, but more of an enhancer than a, than a solo act, right? Um, the, the oily fish are for me. Yeah, I mean, I tell you, if, if, if you take a fresh sardine and scale it and gut it and just cut some slits in it and grill it in the backyard on the grill and put that on a bed of greens and maybe squeeze a grapefruit on it and drizzle some olive oil. I mean, it's like the most sublime, perfect lunch you could ever have. Absolutely. But people, I don't understand why people want the most carroty tasting carrot and they want the, the beefiest grass-fed beef and they want the most pungent vegetable or the hoppiest beer, but they don't want a fish that tastes like a fish. Yeah. I mean, what the hell is wrong with this? Well, and, and also, like a lot of times... A lot of Western fish cookery consists of masking flavor, right? Even if you're just like doing almondine or breading and frying it. And, and those are all the most sort of mild, bland fish. But, um, but even in the case of sushi, I mean, to watch most Americans eat sushi, they just dunk it in the soy sauce. I mean, you can't taste anything. Yeah, they make this weird bathtub mixture of wasabi and soy sauce, which, you know, any true... Japanese sushi master will tell you they put the perfect amount of wasabi on there. You you don't need any more. Yeah. And then you you know some of them will even glaze it with a light bit of soy, and that's and they it. They don't even give you a bowl to dip it in. That's it. Yeah. If you went to Jiro Ono's place in in Tokyo on a subway, Michelin three star, you sit down twenty three minutes. It's what seventeen courses, and you just eat the fish two bites. Yeah, and he brushes it with the sauce every time. Exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. he trust the masters, but. I don't know. I don't want to risk alienating your your audience, well, no, but I think Americans have a sense of hubris with many things, and especially they think they know better with food. It's like, how do you? If if this isn't your culture, I wouldn't dare tell someone from Hungary how to make their goulash. Right. So why would I be so brazen to tell a Japanese person how they should yeah. season my my sushi rice or? brush my sashimi with the right amount of glaze or i mean could you imagine going to someone in nebraska or the midwest and they make this perfect apple pie and you're like can you pass a sugar bowl over here i yeah. just need to adjust the, the yeah. sugar yeah. season they would look at you like what the yeah. hell are you i just want to pour maple syrup on top of this because it needs yeah. it needs more sauce yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean we really are interesting animals what what we think that we need to adjust and nature i think has made everything taste right yeah. i mean you have this gargantuan garden that your viewers can't see but post a photo it holy shit when you allow a tomato to grow to its peak of freshness and its acid is right and its sugar level is right and its aroma is right maybe a touch of salt and that's yeah. just because we want you know okay we found the most flavorful thing in the world let's just push it over the edge a little bit yeah but nature will make everything grow right so if you don't like 
really oily fish. Like I, I try to teach you got three activity levels with fin fish. You got low, medium, and high. High would be anything with an arrow-shaped tail. Your mahis, your swordfish, your sharks, your tunas, your mackerels, salmon, which is more of a broom-shaped tail. High activity, high myoglobin, high flavor, high oil. Cook them low oil, right? Render out the fat like a piece of bacon. You got your low activity ground fish, your flatfish, your cod family, your monkfish. Low oil, you notice they're generally cooked in oil, right? Because they need it. Right. Otherwise, they dry out. And then you got the medium bass snapper grouper, largest kind of overreaching family of the oceans. So just like Goldilocks thought, you know, too soft, too hard, just right. This could be too oily. This could be too soft. This could be just right. Find the flavor profile you actually like. Yeah. But Americans and humans in general these days are so instant gratification that we find something and rather than doing the experimenting and cooking and finding what's right for your bodies, we try to fit that square peg in the round hole. Like, okay, I'm going to take this fish and it's a little too oily, so I'm going to mask it or I'm going to drench it with something acidic to balance out the oil. Why do that to the fish? Just get the fish with less oil and then yeah. you'll be okay. Or Do you think that in the case, I mean, in the case especially of the fishier fish, do you think that some of people's dislike for those is just a function of them buying it from a supermarket where it's been on ice for a week? It could be. It very well could be. The it, sweetness is gone and it's mostly just the fishiness that stays behind? Yeah, or it's been poorly frozen or... I don't know. You know, because up here we're a hundred miles from the ocean, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and more than that, from the nearest real major port where the real stuff gets landed. Yeah, I mean, we're three hours from Boston, and if you want fresh fish, I'm sorry, Boston trumps New York City. Yeah, yeah. the boats actually come into the city yeah. and unload their catch. Yeah, well, Boston, Point Judith, Montauk. I mean, those are like the. Yeah, I mean, but even Montauk is just as far if not farther with traffic than oh, Boston. No, it is. It's further. So it's a, you, everyone thinks of like the new Hunts Point market or the new Fulton market at Hunts Point, but no boats coming into the Bronx from the ocean. I mean, no. it's just unloaded from one truck and unloading this big fancy fish haul and unloaded back on another truck. So what, what I tell people up here, because we are not near the ocean and, and the fish selection, as we've talked about at length over many years, is uh, pretty lackluster up here. What I tell people is to make friends with the fish guy, like at the local supermarket, um, for a couple reasons. One, their phone never rings, so they're super excited when anyone actually calls to talk to them. It makes their day. Two, if you order something a little off the beaten track, then when it comes in, you know it came in that morning because no one else ordered it. Yeah, it came in just for you. Just for you. And so you can get, like, off the plane fresh fish the next day, sometimes even same day. Um, and I, so that's what I tell people up here to do. Just and less chance of it being frozen because what are the odds that that weird one-off fish is sitting in a freezer? They're going to yeah, look or even for if it it's the market. The, even if it's like the Kona Kampachi or something, you know, it's, it's like they don't, nobody carries that around here. So if you ask them for it, and it's farmed, but I think it's farmed pretty well. Well, they did a great job. I mean, one of the main part of the Kona Kampachi's diet is spirulina. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a complete protein. It's plant-based. They cut down mm-hmm. on... Neil Sims, who was the CEO of Kona Blue, decided he really wanted to do better by the ocean. And being in Kona, there's uh, Cyanotech and a few other spirulina farmers down there that they started making pressed pellets that look like rabbit food uh-huh. and started feeding them that. And it's complete protein. And some people have stopped carrying them for reasons like, oh, well, they don't eat this and they don't eat that in the wild. But it's. I think we have to get away from that. You know, if, if a fish is willing to eat a super sustainable plant. A vegan diet. A vegan diet. And it's it's doing, you know, it's not a, a neg, net negative. Like why some people, the average salmon, average farm-raised salmon takes four pounds of food. Like here's my example I tell everybody. Yeah. Four pounds of feed makes a salmon grow one pound. Mm-hmm. So four pounds in, one pound out. The average farm-raised salmon is 14 pounds. So now you're looking at 64 pounds of feed. Mm-hmm. Which is what? Ground up? No, no. Well, 56 pounds of feed yeah. makes a 16-pound salmon. And that's ground up shrimp shells? Yeah, it used to be. Now it's, Menhaden. now it's sardines, anchovies, mackerel. Then you take that fish and you get a 60% yield. Mm-hmm. So now you're down on a 7.56 or 8 pounds of usable meat 
with 56 pounds of input and people are like well what's the big deal i'm like give me 56 dollars and i'll give you eight back yeah I'm like why the hell would i do that i'm like well why the hell do you do that with your dinner right so there, so there you are can, some you just good... eat the anchovies, you're cutting out the middle. Exactly. Middleman, but you can uh, eat 56 pounds the, of anchovies. The salmon farmers justify by saying, well, no one eats anchovies. I'm like, well, even if I didn't eat anchovies and Peter didn't eat anchovies and my wife didn't eat anchovies and my kids didn't eat them, what about all the fish that eat them? Yeah. So you start knocking out the rungs on the food chain. The worst are bluefin tuna. When someone tells me, they, oh, it's sustainable, it's ranched. Like, I want to go right for their jugular because a bluefin tuna requires 17 pounds of feed to grow one pound. And we're talking weight gains of three, four, five hundred pounds per fish. Multiply that times 17 and all of a sudden, holy shit. We can clear cut the ocean and that's fine. McDonald's clear cuts the rainforest in Brazil and they're the Antichrist. The thing is, you can see the rainforest coming down. You don't see the biomass of the ocean. Right. We're at roughly 10% of the biomass of where we should be yeah. in the ocean, and but it's out of sight, it's out of mind. No I, one... I'm reading increasingly apocalyptic predictions about finfish. It's... it's horrifying. I mean, I tried to just explain to my, my kids understand. I'm like, oh my God, in the 70s, I'd go fishing every weekend in the Hudson or out on the Atlantic or the Chesapeake, and we always brought... You know, we would keep what we wanted and throw back the rest. But I never remember not catching fish. And nowadays, I don't. I, I I know I've spent more money on fuel fishing than catching. I mean, there's a reason I call it fishing and not catching. Yeah. So it's like, holy shit, when am I going to catch a fish again? Everyone's like, oh, you have bad luck. I'm like, the planet's got bad luck. We're just out of freaking fish. Get through your head. We're at 10%. And sometimes you got to taste. Look at a room full of people and be like, all right, count them off, multiply times 0.9. All right, those people get out of the room. This is what's left in the ocean. And sometimes that's what wakes people up. You know, 91% of the fish in this country is imported. So people don't, they just take for granted. Like, oh, there's plenty of fish. I go to the grocery store. There's 12 different kinds. Yeah. You know, we have our our fancy grocery stores in the Hudson Valley. And we have our, I don't know, big name grocery stores and there's anywhere from 10 to 20 varieties depending on what store you go well, to. but but isn't it true like because are the the most um prevalent big name store in this part of the hudson valley is hannaford and don't they have some kind of executive for sustainable seafood now they do but when i moved here 14 and a half years ago no, that long ago i don't recall they did not. It, but it was about now, 10 years ago i think they had created that position somewhere along the lines because now it's like oh we use sustainable alaskan salmon or we use this or and the farm stuff is supposedly vetted according to some standards. And there, I, like, I don't know. Like I said, there are good farms and yeah. there are not so good farms. I'm sure you can buy you can buy conventional produce and you can buy organic produce. Right. You can buy biodynamic And you can buy local produce. organic, not industrial organic from California. And then you can also find grown in the style of organic, but they can't afford the third-party certification, right. which... They may actually do a better job because they, they might, put more yeah. money into the field and they pay into applications and Absolutely. government bullshit. Yeah, and they may well pay their people more too. Mm-hmm. Because so it, it, it's I think organic has become really diluted. Yeah, I mean, what the hell does it mean anymore? Walmart, yeah, I guess from what I've been told is they only carry organic produce, but you know when Green Giant or whatever big name company can afford to be whatever certified sustainable organic are they really or do they have the fees that need to be paid off i mean i think we we also eat too much yeah and i'll talk about sustainable when the average american only needs four pounds of protein or the average human let's forget america the average Amer- human only needs four ounces of protein in a meal Yet in America, we're, we're well off. I'm not going to say we're not, but we're like, oh, I want the 12-ounce strip steak, the 16-ounce T-bone, the 24-ounce porterhouse. It's like, wow, where's all that extra food going? Yeah. And it's not that there's not enough food to go around this planet. There's more than enough calories. If we can eat huge whopping porterhouses and, and half-pound pieces of fish, It's a lot of it's also distribution. Yeah. There's so much inequality. Yeah. Know where your foods come from. Talk to your farmers. See if you can find the fishermen locally. So if you're listening to this and you live anywhere near the coast, man, if you just went down to the docks and talked to the fishermen, there are times they would love for you to buy the fish just so they could move it. Yeah. And so what? They're going to charge you a couple more dollars and they charge a distributor? Whatever. Yeah. 
it's still going to be cheaper than the grocery store. Sometimes the flavor, the difference of a day or two of freshness is a revelation. I mean, this garden out front, I tell this to anybody, um, the difference between a salad that you cut five minutes before you eat it and one that you even cut an hour, let alone a day or two or three or however long it took to truck it from California, it's different food. And the nutrient level. Yeah. I mean, the degradation of nutrients and produce. Like, I, I tell my students at times, I'm like, I, I always ask, has anyone ever broke a corn or, or ear of corn off a stalk in a field and eaten? And there's usually one or two hands that go up. I'm like, compare that to what you buy in the grocery store. Like, I wouldn't even buy corn in the grocery store. Or yeah. raw milk versus pasteurized. And that's how I springboard into fish. I'm like, now when you eat fish, it's just out of rigor mortis 24 hours out of the ocean versus the local grocery stores let's be realistic it's probably seven to 11 days out of the water absolutely and they just don't turn it over fast enough and even then some people eat it like "Ooh, this is really fresh I'm like okay possibly i mean fresh to me the definition is not processed but that's that's a, a whole another discussion for another day but it should glisten. Even, there's even good freezing. I mean, yeah. God, cryogenic freezing, 150 degrees below zero, liquid nitrogen blast. Yeah, on the, the boat. Yeah. Sashimi grade. The average person can't even tell the difference. New York law, you cannot serve raw fish in the state of New York without freezing it. Yeah, because of the parasites. Yeah. So everyone's like, oh, this is the freshest fish I've ever had. And I'll hear that in a sushi restaurant behind me. And I'll just, my son and I will look at each other and smirk because we know. But to them... It tastes, and it does taste really fresh. It's just it does. reinforcing that it's not what you do, it's how you do it. It's not what you farm, how do you farm. It's not what you freeze, but how did you freeze it. It's not what did you catch, how did you catch it. So that's that was like going back to passion fish was here's the education. Right. There's good, could be better, and wow, this could really be better for everything. And mm-hmm. people, I, I don't want to sound like the doomsday, we've... We've become lazy. Yeah. We don't even want to do the freaking research anymore. With a goddamn... Everyone that I know carries a supercomputer in their pocket. Yeah. And you have all the information at your fingertips. And now we can't even be bothered if a Google search tastes like, holy shit, I waited five seconds to find this. I'm like, oh my God, you yeah. impatient. You remember card catalogs? Yeah. Oh my <laughs> God, the Dewey Decimal System. Yeah. Like, say I mentioned to people like, what is that? Some off-punk band that you listened to back in the yeah, 80s? That's I'm pretty like, funny. Like, no, it's like we did the research and I don't know, I, I still want to do as much research as possible, even knowing it changes all the time. And I think maybe people are just like, well, screw it. It's going to change tomorrow. So I'll look it up tomorrow. Well, yeah, what's going to change tomorrow is that we're going to be basically eating squid and cockroaches because there isn't anything else. And, and maybe that might be a slight exaggeration. I know there's a huge increase in octopus and encephalopods right now in the ocean that nobody's quite sure what's going on that might be warmer temperature they, they they have a kind of boom and bust i'm sure you know a lot more about i know that. a lot more about their bust and their boom yeah um but it, yeah and that's the whole thing it's like i can't tell you to eat fish x today because tomorrow it could be right. well the- but low on the food chain is good advice and the one declarative statement on the subject that i made in my book was um that eating farmed shellfish is an absolute good there's no downside to it because it's Cleaning the ocean. Now you're probably- well, I would say farmed filter feeders. Filter feeders, okay. Gastropods, like clams, oysters, mussels, scallops. Okay. I will, I'll go on a limb and agree with you there. Okay. Farmed shellfish such as shrimp. Shrimp, yeah, okay. That's now I, you've got. I was some, not including. You have some really amazing shrimp farms right up the road in the Hudson Valley. Um, what used to be local oceans. Now I think it's Hudson Valley Fish Company. They oh, so they, that's still steelhead a fish trout. Thing. Yeah, yeah, they. And it's happening. They do steelhead trout and they do white-footed shrimp. They do a really good. Once That's again, it's the local ocean was so fun, man. That place yeah. creeped me out. They were weird. You could tell they were breaking law, which is why they got yeah, shut down. Yeah, they literally like bagged it up in the middle of the night and left town. Oh, those guys were those guys were a disaster. But so I'm glad to know that that's still happening. Yeah, yeah. Guy, he his family has some fish farms in Vegas, and if I'm not mistaken, down in the southern Arizona border, a little north of Mexico, and just um, east of California. So they're doing shrimp and steelhead trout. So like there's good shrimp, whereas so much of the shrimp in Southeast Asia, the, the amount of pesticides and fungicides oh, yeah. and Not everything else. Not actual human slavery in some cases. Exactly. You know, that's the other part of sustainability. Like what's it doing to the population? You're, you're enslaving these people just to feed the demand. In the American diet, 
the average American eats 14 point three or fourteen point five pounds of fish a year. Which, a year, that's it? Which is nothing. When you look at the average American eats half a pound of veal a year, half a pound of lamb, which sounds low, but if you think of the price, fourteen pounds of fish, fifty two pounds of pork, sixty five pounds of red meat, seventy two pounds of chicken, we don't eat a lot of fish. No. Spain averages hundred point one pounds per person, Japan's about hundred and forty seven, Iceland's two hundred and twenty. Wow. We don't like fish. Now that's average America. That takes except we like we like the bottomless shrimp at Red Lobster. We do, and we the average American eats four pounds of shrimp a year, and the top three are always shrimp, canned tuna, and salmon. Mm -hmm. Pollock is usually number four, and that's usually processed into other stuff. Surimi, fillet of fish sandwiches, fish cakes. Yeah. So when you look at what we eat, we the number one fish we eat doesn't even taste like a fish. Yeah. It's got that meaty mouth feel. It's got the chew. The only reason I'm convinced people eat salmon is because your doctor tells you oh you have heart disease healthy healthy fats eat more omega-3s well dude eat some squid you want omega-3 squid is way up there sardines almost off the charts anchovies super high and also frankly grass-fed beef grass-fed beef and and pastured pork also super high but people like oh well i heard tilapia it's cheap well tilapia is fed so much rice and grain it's omega-6s are off the chart and then that throws you out of balance and you have inflammation and it's just we are eating ourselves into a grave. Hmm. We really are. It's 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 horrifying. So so how um, how did you get then from founding Passion Fish with a bunch of friends to then teaching at the CIA? What like how do you fill in that gap there? Well, I was in San Diego and I was executive chef of a restaurant for quite a few years, and then it was I don't know a few different reasons kind of made us rethink living in San Diego. We wanted, we had a growing family and uh, we had our second kid and we're like, oh, school districts aren't the best. And then we're looking at private schools and we're like, God, we should just kind of move somewhere where it's more affordable. So we moved up to Portland, Oregon before every hipster, <laughs> pre-Portlandia. Right. And I got a job teaching because I was like, wow, I can be in the food industry have manageable hours, have weekends off, get to know my children yeah. instead of coming home and them saying, who are you? Right. Like most chefs experience. And I lasted there for about three years and the weather was just, it crucified me. Mm. I need sunshine. I mean, yeah. I lived four years in the Caribbean and three years on the Mediterranean and then three more years in San Diego. And I'm like, wow, 10 years of sunshine, boom, right into Portland. Pissing down rain 24-7, 365. And I just started getting mortally depressed. And after three years, my wife at the time's like, well, what do you want to do with your life? I'm like, well, I love teaching. So we looked at, she pulled up, you know, back in the early days of Google, cooking schools and Greystone for CIA came up and we're like, oh, we'll move back to California, Northern California. Sure. Ideal. Yeah. And we started looking and this was, oh man, 19, well, 14 and a half years ago. So 2004, we're looking and we could we found like double wide trailers on dirt lots for eight hundred thousand. We're like, whoa, yeah. this is just not going to happen. And she found there was a link to uh, the Hyde Park campus, and she did all this research. She's like, well, I know we never said we'd go back east, but how do you feel about New York? I'm like, oh, it's got to be better than here. Yeah. Snows better than rain. Yeah. So I came out here and and. It's funny, we did a dinner at the James Beard House. It was Easter, which is funny that tomorrow's Easter. It was Easter 2004, and we did dinner at the Beard House. And then the next day, I did a cooking interview on campus. Yeah. Found out two weeks later, I got a job offered to me. And that was April, I want to say it was April 4th, 2004. And then we moved out on Friday the 13th, August Hmm. of 2004. And I've been there ever since. Taught a few different classes, and then the, the seafood class opened up. One of the instructors left, and uh, I was like, well, I love fish. Yeah. But it, so you it, got hired as a just general just instructor? Just as a general instructor. I had nothing right. to do with seafood whatsoever. Actually, I did more for the first two years. I taught catering because as a, as a caterer, I came right, natural. Because you, you had a catering business mm-hmm. the whole time. Yeah. So it, 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 it really was natural. I'm like... You know, I really love fish, and everyone's like, "Oh God, it's awful! It's cold, it's wet, it's the dungeon, it's no one wants to be in there." You're standing in puddles of salt water, and I'm like, "Perfect." Yeah. 
the administration won't come down with their fancy shoes, That's right? right? That's just like being below decks. Exactly. <laughs> I put me in the bilge. So I went down there, and it's kind of like I've never come up since. And I find, like anything, I mean, you you know that you could read a book about gardening and you learn something, but when you do the gardening, you learn more. And then when you teach someone how to garden, it yeah. furthers You the learn knowledge. more still because you have to be able to explain it. Exactly. So you need to learn it, synthesize the, that education from an even deeper level. So I just find when people are aren't you bored of teaching it after all these years i'm like no because every year i learn more Mm -hmm. and of course you know sustainability shifts or new species are introduced or i learn about a new fishing method or farming technique so i see so many more facets of it than okay this is a dead fish how do you cut it how do you gut it how do you scale it how do you cook it and do you find that the student's relationship to fish is changing at all? Because because we are a country that doesn't eat a lot and is mostly scared of it? I think they're more scared of it than, I don't want to say ever before. I think the people with adventurous palates are seeking out more and more. And the people with less adventurous palates, because they all, all they hear are the news blurbs of, oh, mercury in the water, oh, Fukushima, now it's radioactive. It scares them even more. And I'm not going to pigeonhole them to certain geographical locations of this country, but let's be realistic. I say the average American eats 14 pounds of fish, but if we're in New York City, if you're in Boston, South Beach, Charleston, Portland, Maine, Portland, Oregon, LA, San Diego, the big major hubs... You know, you probably have people who eat 50, 60, 70 pounds right. of fish a year. But those and then people you in go, Nebraska you were talking about with the apple pie, yeah. maybe not so much. Start from North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Montana, Oklahoma, Dallas. Yeah. That's meat and potato land. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. It's logical. So, you know, it still balances out. They may be like, oh, yeah, I ate uh, all-you-can-eat shrimp at Red Lobster. Yeah. Sure. On my birthday. Yeah. Three years ago. I'm like, okay, now you understand Let's take your tonnage versus mine, and we'll average out yeah, to... Yeah, So, and have the... Because you've now been teaching for a while, and what your dad noticed early on when the Food Network kind of broke big, and being a chef became, in a lot of people's eyes, a real, you know, a path to rich and fam- riches and fame and celebrity, right? However silly that may be in reality. But it's certainly this country discovered, you know, chef culture and celebrity chefs in a big way. And you've now been teaching there for... A really long time and relative to that period during which this country got extremely excited about silly cooking competition shows but also about some real food programming and and just grew up in general Um, are the students coming in with different expectations yeah I mean I'm not gonna lie there are some that come in there and think well I wanted to be famous and I'm not gonna make it in Hollywood I have law of odds and statistics i got a better chance going through culinary school and we have had i mean well, grant ackett's went there right grant I mean, ackett's amazing michelin star chef uh, the last gal kelsey who just won top chef she was one of my students years she was in one of my first fish classes back in uh well i guess not first fish class i guess it was about 2011 2010 yeah and like i've seen a lot of my good students i'd say 10 percent of my students hit it really big yeah. and, and like I, I watch their careers and some of them have become famous meat butchers and famous chefs or go on to Oakland Michelin um, one and two star places yeah. or even three stars like Grant and, and do the majority like what's what, again like taking the concept of averaging like your fish consumption versus your student from Kansas's would you say that most students with a with a full degree from the CIA is your average student going to be a line cook in a hotel restaurant? Like, what's the... what? I don't know. I mean, back... I graduated culinary school in 93. Yeah. And it was... I, I, I still tell this story to all my students. I'm like, well, at graduation, after we're all getting in our cars and leaving, it was like, hotel, country club, or restaurant. Like, yeah. those were our choices. These days, these kids have so many options. I mean, you could be private chef, personal chef, caterer, restaurant, hotel, freestanding, uh, airlines, cruise food ship, food truck. And yeah. I have a lot of students who get into the food truck scene. I have one up in uh, Rochester. He's got this unbelievable pizza truck. It's just stupid how cool it is. Yeah. I mean, it's like there's so many more possibilities. So a lot of our students, I think, or my students, when I talk to them, are actually confused. There's so many options, they don't know what they want to do. And any education, I mean, when you get out of school, it's like I try to say, I I give you a roadmap. 
Yeah. Doesn't mean you're going to be an F1 driver. Like you have to practice. You have to find someone the best that you can and work under them and learn all their secrets. And then after a year, go work for another one and learn everything. And like yeah. and travel, stay like humble. Travel, 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 travel. You, there's two ways you can go about it. You can get the, the quick route to money, but that means your education stops and you're a cog in a machine or you're the, the, the robot. And these kids are like, oh, I'm in debt. I culinary school, my student loans. I need a good paying job so I can afford to live, which is a tragic irony of this country. Yeah. Or you could continue learning from as many masters as you can and then have an exponential growth a little later in life with your career. So I just keep telling people, keep learning. It's yeah. like anything. I mean, you can get out of any school and keep learning from the greats, uh, artists, whatever, do some apprenticeships, or would pick a yeah. field. Or take the fast route that burns out quickly. But I think, historically, really only 3% of the people who graduate culinary school stay in the industry for more than five years. Even yeah. going back to when I was in school. I But I knew nothing else. I always say food called to me. I was the, I was the weird kid. I remember in elementary school, in wintertime, everyone's having snowball fights and building snow forts and igloos in their yard in Jersey. And I'm going up and down the street baking all the holiday cookies and cakes with all the women. My mother farmed me out. She was like my food pimp. And like it stuck. And then I would always work with my grandparents or my aunts or my great aunts or great uncles and stirring polenta and making risotto and pasta while all my cousins and everything else were running around in the little tiny backyards of the Bronx. And I'm like, I don't want to go outside. I just want to cook. I mean, I love the outside. I enjoy the outside. But... There was something about the comfort of food. It was like my solace. And after school, my mother would make us weed the garden. I'm like, this is bullshit. I hate this. But to this day, I can feel a vegetable and know, like, this is right. Absolutely. And when I talk to people in grocery store, students, or or even sometimes people in my own family, I'm like, grab me the ripe X, Y, Z. Like, which one's ripe? I'm like, feel it, smell it, touch it, tap it. What sound does it make? Like... Food called to I, I wanted to be a chef before there was the Food Network. Yeah, I yeah, wasn't yeah. like, oh, cool. I saw this on a late night infomercial. I'm gonna sign up. Yeah, yeah. Well, so so given that, you know, a degree from the CIA is is an interesting combination of things, right? Because it is college, and there are some academics there, but it's it's a vocational school, but it costs a fortune. So it's not like the same as going to like, you know, car mechanic school or something. It costs a lot more, I think. I, I, you can, so you can incur some major debt. And yes, I, I hear you when there, there are a ton of options in terms of ways you can take your career. Um, but you're, you're, you're taking on a lot for a, a, a career path that might not pay very well for quite a long time. Um, even if you have your own food truck or certainly if you're on the line somewhere. You know, you're, it's, the money's pretty bad. But that's why, like any school, you need to work hard. Yeah. In your free time... I mean, God, we are so blessed. When I went to culinary school, I was in the desert. I was literally in the desert. I yeah. was in Scottsdale, Arizona. Right. Here, these kids have such an advantage. When school is over, they can go to a sheep farm and they could learn how to milk a sheep and make cheese right. at Old Chatham Sheep Herding Company. They could go to coach farms and milk a goat and make goat cheese. They could go Sprout Creek Farm and, and milk a cow and make cow cheese. They could that go, guy's really good. Yeah, they're he's awesome. A, he's a hell of a cheesemaker. They could go to any number of orchards and learn how to pick the right apples. They could go to farms. They could yeah. fish farm. I and mean, do like, they do it? Do you see them? Some of them, yeah. Actually, some of the ones that I said, like I, I read about, yeah. they took every advantage of it. And I think I'm, I'm blessed as much as I couldn't stand my father for it at the time. Had I gone to culinary school at 18, I might have been like some of... The kids where I'm like, you don't understand where you live. You've got right. literally one of the best culinary centers at your fingertips. Yeah. You know, it's it's what you said about 3% of people who go to culinary school stay in the business however many years later. Um, I heard sometime around the time I finished at RISD and got my BFA, it was something like 4% of people who got a BFA in fine art ended up actually being artists. So it's not that far off. It's yeah, pretty analogous. So for you, culinary school was more like grad school. And people at grad school... In my experience, especially those who took a few years off in between to go out and work and just get knocked around by the real world, people came to grad school with a completely different mindset. 
yeah. and uh, took it way more seriously and benefited it, you know, 10 times more. That's why at 40, uh, 48 going on 49, going to grad school now, I'm like, wow, I've never studied this hard in my life, but I enjoy it and I get it. And I try to impart that knowledge to, to everyone I come across, not that I, whatever, I'm in grad school, but that take advantage, learn as many facets as you can. The best way to figure out what you want to do for your living is do a hundred jobs that you say, I never want to do this again. Yeah. Right? Like, That's... go say, do I want to pick olives? Maybe. For a day. Fuck, go, go <laughs> do an agriturismo in Italy and yeah. like, pick the olives, see how they're cured, know how to taste them, when are they ripe? And now not only are you picking olives with the farmer, now you're eating with the farmer's family on the farm and holy shit, you just learn what a real you know ragu should taste like Absolutely. fresh from the fresh from the farm the farmer probably shot the rabbit or yeah. trapped it or whatever it's like those are the experiences that make it like as a painter or an artist going to 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 visit a sculptor at a young age like impart that wisdom where it's just something's got to hook you yeah and so many people today i think are lost because they're so dependent on their goddamn phones and they just think, oh, I'll just cruise around Instagram and look at cool pictures of food and then I'll know what I want to do. It's like, right. no, bullshit. Well, but also really like, man, what you said about um, learning what you don't want to do, like ever again, that's incredibly important. I had some shit eating jobs when I was younger and they changed my life because I did everything in my power to never have to do a job like that again. Yeah. And that's a really powerful motivator. Yeah, I thought it was really cool one summer putting in septic fields and making a shit ton of money until yeah. literally I realized one day <laughs> that not only do you have to install them working for this company, sometimes they break. Yeah, you have to and then you're just like, wow, yeah. now it cost averaging. Now I understand why they make so much money. Yeah. So yeah, like I learned like, well, okay, so the quick fix to money isn't always the way. And those are the little nuggets of information. 15, my father sent me to live in Italy. I'm like, oh, greatest trip in the world. Till I realized I was sweeping up stone dust in a quarry in Carrara all day long. And then I'm like, oh, it looks like it snowed again overnight. I'm like, fuck, give me the broom. Here we go again. I'm like, push, push, push. But knew well enough that I, you know, talking with the locals and eating these little baby mountain goats and just like... And learning Italian. Yeah. And like, oh my God. Like, being smart enough to realize that, you know, it's like Danielson, wax on, wax off. There's more to it. So get every experience you can and look at everything from as many angles like you might think this sucks but it's here to teach you a lesson yeah yeah and put down your phone and pick up your passport exactly yeah oh, i don't have a good passport go what the fuck it's 60 bucks go I get know. For... It's a, no it's criminally low how many people in this country have a passport the and percentage is terrible people who will pay you or trade you like we said the agriturismo is like whatever get your ass up bust your balls get a cheap airline ticket Go to a kibbutz in Israel or an agriturismo in Italy or a vineyard in France, like all yeah. the traveling gypsies, yeah. and pick grapes. Yeah, room and not... board, man. Room and board. That's what you need. I mean, I was so fortunate two years ago to to Burgundy and just, you know, it was funny. I was sitting in France and Danielle and I were in a cafe and I was posting pictures and an old student out of nowhere on Instagram was like, you're in Paris right now? I'm like, yeah. It's like, I'm not far from you. I'll meet you for a drink in an nice. hour. And we were doing this whole thing where we were like, we're going to backpack, but glamping, so to speak. We yeah. just did, you know, hotels tonight or whatever. We're doing like nice hotels, spur of the moment. We'll yeah, go totally. And he's like, do you have a place to stay? And we're like, well, we haven't booked it tonight. He's like, you want to go to Burgundy? He's like, you know, my family has shares in this vineyard. I'm like, fuck, white Burgundy. Who the, f Pinot Noir, Cap? I mean, we, obviously, we want to go to Burgundy. Obviously. I've got to go back to my place, hop on a train. I'll meet you there in a day it's like you just got to make this trade you got to cook for the the grape pickers and you got free room and board and here we are in like this gorgeous compound in the center of bone i'm cooking for you know this new style american cuisine with all my influences and caribbean flavors and these you know grape pickers blowing their minds and i'm weird they think it's the greatest thing and i'm doing like bananas foster from new orleans flambe and like whoa what the f yeah, we're drinking these wines. I'm like, I totally got the better end of the deal. And we're yeah. on a great... Because well, you like line. to cook, so it's fun. And I love to cook. I'm like, it's, this is not work. Yeah. And I love to eat more. But just having that experience taught me, like... I'm not going to by any means say I'm a, a winemaker. But, like, I learned more about winemaking in two hours in this small family-owned 
white burgundy processing plant and then going out to see their their three or four rows of vines which sounds like nothing but then when you realize like you got four vi- four rows of vines Polini Montrachet yeah, it's, yeah that's that's something that's yeah, like one percent sure of the world there so those are the experiences that make you and that's when you realize and you're talking to the winemaker even in Hudson Valley whatever okay we don't have the best wines mm, there's some talented people but if you learn what that person is taking the best that they can and extract as much flavor out yeah. of it. it's like that I don't know. It's in, it's infectious. Now then, when you pick a tomato, you're like, how do I coax as much flavor out of yeah, this? It's absolutely. not the strongest. Okay, well maybe if I roast it for a little while and cook out some of the water, it'll concentrate what's there. And like I don't know. It's all about the education. I keep telling people, learn, 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 learn. Yeah. Everyone's so, got so something to do. What's teach what's us. next? What's the what's the next confluence of, of things? Oof. I. There's so many ideas. If if. If my wife hears this and hears that I'm starting to think about something new, yeah. Well, I mean, when we saw each other last week, we talked about you know doing doing the, 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 the a more polished version of the. You know, well, travel, there may the... there may be another fish taco cafe in my future. I'm yeah. not going to say there's not, <laughs> but I mean, my my long reaching goal is I don't want to go so much agriturismo, but being with my whole new, I don't want to get old. I got to do all these crazy ass sports. Yeah, is is get a place in Europe right outside a major city where we can set up you know, an outbuilding and turn it into a commercial kitchen where we can do cooking lessons and then do vineyard tours and have you come out. Totally, I'm in. Let's do it. Let's do you know yoga and food, wine and food, bike tours and food. I just I I need to be around food. Like I said, food called me at a young age, and it's I don't want to say it defines me, but I love it so much. It's been this passion for, holy Christ, 30 plus years. Yeah. And it's just, it's who I am. Absolutely. It, it, I get so emphatic talking about it. Sometimes people are like, calm down. I'm like, you don't understand. Like, I need no, to. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. But I think it's what makes for a good teacher because you really care about it. Yeah. I mean, find someone that kind of drives you slightly crazy because they don't want to stop talking about it because that's who you know really, really loves it. Yeah. Any, any schmuck could read anything I write and put online, but to, to research out the person and, and find out and pick their brain and just ask, so it may seem like nonsense, but that's sometimes where you dig out those little pearls of wisdom. Totally. Cool, man. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah. yeah Want to make some fun. dinner? Yeah, let's go do it. All right. Uh, Thanks. Viverito, chefgerard.com, Gerard Viverito on Instagram, I'm cookblog on Instagram, cookpod.net, acookblog.com, which is where you can email me if you are so moved. Theme music by my son, Milo Barrett, smilob.com. Please like, please subscribe, please rate five stars, and please tune in again. Thank you very much for listening.